realize one of the reasons that I use slides is because it's, it connects better with us when we both read out loud and are reading with our eyes what it is that we're doing. It kind of sticks a little bit better. So that's one of the reasons, if you wonder why it is that I use slides, that's why I do it. Also, I like pictures. Pictures really help when we have those or our diagrams and things like that. Well, this is the fourth and last Sunday of Advent, and remember that Advent is looking forward to the celebration of Jesus' birth. This is the last Sunday in Advent because Christmas is on Friday. Well, so far this Advent we have heard from Mary and Zechariah and the angels because we have been going through the Christmas story that you find in the book of Luke. Today we hear from a man named Simeon, who is probably the least known of the four that we've looked at. So I'm going to read. We're still working on this. We got the slides? We are good. Oh, so we can read them together. So let's read the slide. Let's read Luke 2, 25 to 35 together from the screen and remain seated. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So far in the Christmas story that we get from Luke, in chapters 1 and 2, an angel visited the priest Zechariah. An angel visited, <coughs> excuse me, an angel visited Mary. Zechariah's son, John the Baptist, was born. Jesus was born. The angels visited the shepherds, and the shepherds found Jesus in a manger. Now, we just read the interaction uh, with Joseph, Mary, Jesus, and Simeon, but there's a few verses just before this that talk about Jesus. Let me read that. This is Luke 2, starting in verse 21. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given him, given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So in the Christmas story, of course, Mary and Joseph 
go to Bethlehem, and that's where Jesus is born. Now we see why it is they go from Bethlehem to Jerusalem to the temple. They went first to be ritually purified after Jesus' birth, and secondly, to redeem Jesus. Now that caught my eye when I was looking at researching this, to redeem Jesus. You think, why in the world would Jesus need to be redeemed? He's the only perfect person there ever has been on earth. Well, to answer that question, you have to go back to the book of Exodus. And in Exodus 13, starting at verse 11, you see God's instruction through Moses to the people Israel of Israel. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrificed to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. So if you remember the, that Old Testament piece of history, the nation of Israel are slaves in Egypt. God chooses Moses to lead them out of slavery. Moses is confronting Pharaoh. Pharaoh refuses to let the people go. God works through Moses ten plagues or wonders. And the final plague was the death of the firstborn for every house in Egypt that did not keep the Passover. Now, if you've ever wondered why it's called the Passover, it's a real simple reason. It's because when the angel of death came that night, if it saw the blood on the doorframe, it passed over the house. And nobody in that house died. And so the Passover included not only the sacrifice of the lamb that's already been talked about, but taking some of the blood from that lamb and putting it on the sides and the top of the doorframe. And so on that night, God spared the firstborn of the nation of Israel. And so now in Exodus 13, after that fact, God says, okay, now here's what happens from now on. Every firstborn son has to be redeemed. Well, Jesus is Mary's first child and he's a boy. So he has to be redeemed. God has many threads like this that begin in the Old Testament and continue into the New Testament. So that is why Joseph and Mary are there in Jerusalem. Now let's come back to our verses, uh, verse 25, about Simeon. It says that Simeon was righteous and devout. Now, two weeks ago, we looked at Zechariah and Elizabeth, and, in, and Luke said they were righteous and devout. And I said, you know, realize none of us are naturally righteous. And by righteous, I mean right living before God, having a right attitude toward God. So just the only way that Zechariah and Elizabeth and Simeon could be righteous is that God made them that way, that God was working in their lives. And then it says that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Look at that word consolation. The root of it is console or comfort, and it's related to grief. That's when you console or comfort somebody when there's, when there's grieving. 
Well, Judea was in a bad situation, both physically, <coughs> excuse me, and spiritually. Physically, Judea was occupied by the Romans. And they're under Roman law. They had to pay Roman taxes. Spiritually, they were in a mess as well. You, you look, typically, you can, you can look at a group of people and look at who their spiritual leadership are, and there's going to be a connection. Well, the spiritual leadership, religious leadership in Jesus' day of Judea were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and maybe a few Essenes that were there that had some influence. The Pharisees started off well. They wanted, as a group, to learn the Bible, learn the Old Testament, follow God's law. But somewhere along the way, they ended up focusing on the outward conformity. They became legalists, and they focused on the rules, and they ignored the heart. When it's the heart that actually drives our behavior, Jesus tells us it's, it's, the heart is what determines what you do and what you say. And so what happened in trying to keep the law, they end up missing the spirit of the law. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in other parts of the Old Testament. And there was rivalry between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Now, think of what it is like when you have a church and the leadership, they're at each other, bickering back and forth. It's a mess. Well, the Essenes are looking at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and thinking, you know what? They are both corrupt. In fact, all the people out there are corrupt. The Essenes were like monks, isolating themselves in, in little communities, and they isolated themselves from the contaminated people, not recognizing they brought their own spiritual contamination with them. Now, if you remember from two weeks ago, God speaks through Zechariah, and Zechariah is looking at his son John, and he says, John, God's going to use you to turn the hearts of the people back to God. Well, think of what that means. If God's going to use John to turn the people's hearts back to God, that means their hearts have turned away from God. That's their spiritual condition. In general, the Jews were waiting for the restoration of Israel, and they took that to mean, they understood restoration to mean the removal of the Romans and moving Judea to a prominent place amongst the other nations. If you think of those two things, they're both situational. They didn't think they really had a spiritual problem. They had a very limited view of their spiritual needs. Then we're told that the Holy Spirit was on Simeon. Now, take those two thoughts together. There's a bad situation with majority of people's hearts turned away from God, and you've got Simeon and the Holy Spirit being on him, and that takes me to the idea of a remnant. Now, I don't know if anybody caught it, but we actually sang that word remnant in one of our songs. A remnant is a small group of people. In my personal Bible reading, I just finished reading about Elijah. And when you read about Elijah, he thinks the entire nation of Israel has turned away from God and is worshiping Baal. God tells Elijah, no, that's not true. There are still 7,000 people in Israel that love me, are obeying me, and they are not worshiping Baal. So God had a remnant in Elijah's day. We see God had a remnant <clears throat> in Jesus' day. 
And God has a remnant today. But remember that a remnant, by definition, is, a, is not a majority. So Christians should not be discouraged today if we are a minority, because God is working His plan for the world. Now, one final thought about consolation. Some scholars believe that that phrase, consolation of Israel, was a way to re- an indirect way to refer to the Messiah. And there were many Jews, including Simeon, who were waiting for the Messiah. And then we see that Simeon was told by God he was going to see the Lord's Christ. Christ is another word for Messiah. And as you saw what we just read, Simeon didn't just see Jesus, he got to hold him. Okay, Christianity is unique among religions in that the God of the Bible is the only God who became like his creatures in order to save them. You look at other religions, at at times other gods in those religions took on human form, but not to save the people, not at great cost to themselves. Only the God of the Bible does this. And, And God is saving us from ourselves, from our own sinfulness. Now, so Simeon is going to hold Jesus in just a minute. And he can do that because Jesus became human. He became like us. And in Hebrews, we are told that Jesus is a sympathetic high priest. A high priest is an intermediary. He stands between the people and God. And he shares with the people what God is saying and who God is like and what God is doing. And then he intercedes with God on the people's behalf. And we're told Jesus is a sympathetic high priest, because he has lived the human experience with all of its difficulties and temptations. And then we see that Simeon was led by the Holy Spirit to the temple. Now, we don't have a picture, you know, a picture in our our minds. The temple was big, the the whole compound. It would hold thousands of people, thousands. And Spirit leads Simeon there. And remember, we read Joseph and Mary are bringing Jesus to the temple And so the Spirit leads Simeon not only to the temple, but to Joseph and Mary and Jesus. Well, the Holy Spirit leads Christians today. But it is hard work to listen to the Spirit of God. First, we have to quiet our own voice. Who who talks to us the most? We do. Now, when we talk to ourselves out loud and start arguing out loud, people start thinking we're going crazy. Okay, but... Most of us don't do that, but we do talk to ourselves. But in addition to that, we've got so many voices and messages coming at us today. About two, two and a half weeks ago, I got a devotional from a friend of mine, and and they, they they talked about a thousand voices. And they said, most people today watch TV, listen to the radio, they're on Facebook, Instagram, they're looking at and listening to other things on the internet, plus all their interaction with their family and their friends and all the self-talk that we do. And all those voices want our attention. And so you and I must be deliberate in giving time for prayer and Bible reading and meditating on God's Word so that we can listen to God. Then we see in verse 28, Simeon takes Jesus up in his arms. He's holding him. Now, you know, it's really easy just to read and kind of pass by things, but imagine you're Joseph and Mary, and you've got your baby, 
and you're in the temple, and this stranger walks up and says, let me hold your baby. Okay? I don't know what their culture was like, but you could just probably be, you know, reasonable to think there's a little hesitation. Now, we're not told, but I am guessing that Simeon comes up and says, Hi, my name is Simeon. Let me tell you what's been happening. God told me about your son, that he's the Messiah. He's the Savior. And Mary would remember, I'm sure, right then, what the angel said back when the angel first came to her. You're going to have a son, be the Son of God, and he's going to be the Savior. And so I think Simeon may have shared, Spirit assured Joseph and Mary, it's okay. And so now Simeon is holding Jesus, and now we come to what I call his song, his words, where now he's speaking. And he begins by blessing God. This is an attitude of worship and thanks and praise. And if you go back and look, you see we've seen this before in the, in the Advent stories that we've looked at. And Christians every day have something to praise God for and to thank God for, even when life is hard. We can always praise God that he's chosen to love us, especially as we see that he chose to love us at great cost to himself. We can always praise God that he has revealed himself to us. Because even though many people in the world are religious, we're not going to find God on our own. He has to come to us. And there's many other things that we can praise God for. Then Simeon says, I've seen Jesus. I can depart in peace. One translation has him saying, now I can die content. Because God kept his promise. Not only to Simeon, but to Abraham and David and Isaiah and Jeremiah, and so many other people. God sent his Messiah. And so Simeon says he can depart in peace. Now, speaking of peace, there's a bumper sticker. I haven't seen it in a while, but I'm sure it's still around. It's a play on words that sound alike, if you go ahead and put it up. No Jesus, no peace. That is, if you don't have Jesus, you do not have peace. But if you know Jesus, K-N-O-W, got a relationship, then you do have peace. Because God is the one who gives peace, not our circumstances. And then verse 30 might seem kind of obvious. Simeon says, My eyes have seen your salvation. And what is he looking at? Who is he looking at? He's looking at Jesus, the baby he's holding. Do you realize what that tells us? God's salvation is not a to-do list. You know, you know when the teacher does that? Okay? God's salvation is not a to-do list for us to complete. God's salvation isn't an idea that we are to follow. God's salvation is a person, which means there has to be a personal relationship with that person. You don't know the person. You don't have it. Now, another word for salvation is rescue. And God says that we, all of us, need to be rescued. Why? Because of our sin. Now, this is a church. You expect us to talk about sin. But this is important, this next thing I'm going to share. Because I grew up in the church. In fact, I was, my name was on the baby rolls before I was a week old. Been in the church ever since. 
I didn't get this for years and years. Normally, when if a person even knows what sin is, they think it's, well, it's the bad things that I do. And it is that, yes. But it's not primarily about our behavior. Sin is about our heart. It's about our desires and our motives because it's, it's in our heart that we choose to do what we do and say what we say. But sin is more than just breaking rules. It's breaking a relationship. It's breaking a relationship between us and God. And so when Jesus rescues us, he restores our relationship with God and he gives us a new heart. And then Simeon says, you, as he's looking at Jesus, you prepared this salvation in the presence of all people. God had promised Abraham that through his descendants, God would bless the entire world, and God put that promise in writing. God preserved his people, the Jews, for centuries, and in those centuries, God spoke through his prophets, and he put those promises in writing. That's why we know today that there are over 300 prophecies and pointers to Jesus in the Old Testament because he put it in writing. He made it public. And at the right time, God sent Jesus. Then Simeon says, Jesus is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Jesus is for glory to your people Israel. When you see that word revelation, think of reveal. I go to the gym Exercise, one of the TVs is on HGTV where they have the fix-it shows. And you've probably seen one of those fix-it shows where they show you the house, um, either rather drab or in very bad condition, and they work through the time of the show repairing it. And at the end is the big reveal. And everybody goes ooh and ah at it. Revelation means reveal. Well, God had predicted for hundreds of years He's going to make things right. He's going to restore, begin to restore what mankind broke. That, that God would rescue us, but people didn't know how God would do it. Well, with Jesus, God not only reveals his plan, he also puts his plan into motion so that we can see how God is going to restore and going to rescue us. But notice what Simeon says. Jesus is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. That would have been so confusing to most people, most Jews in his day. Because they thought that God and anything God's going to do is only for the Jews. In, in the small group that I'm a part of, a care group, we've been going through the book of Acts, and we just finished two chapters where... Um, God sends Peter to Cornelius, and then Peter defends himself when he gets back to Jerusalem. And his defense is both funny and sad, because God prepares Peter, sends him to Cornelius, who is a Roman soldier, that's about as Gentile as you can get, being a Roman soldier, and Cornelius and his friends become Christians. Well, when... When he gets back to Jerusalem, some of the Jews, Christian Jews, are not happy at all. I mean, they could, it almost seems they could care less that there were a few Gentiles that became Christians. They are really upset at, at Peter. You broke our traditions. Buddy, what are you doing? You're one of our, you're one of our leaders. And people are going to follow your example. 
And this is what you're doing? And so Peter has to give a defense. And his basic defense is, God told me to. He gave me a vision that taught me something. He told me to follow Cornelius's uh, servants. He told me to speak to Cornelius. And so I do, and I'm not even halfway done when God makes them Cornelius and his friends Christians the same way he made us Christians at Pentecost. And his basic argument was, God told me to. Am I going to fight against God, huh? And their response? Oh, well, I guess God might have a few Gentiles that he might have as part of the church. They were reluctant. But what they missed is what God shows and has pointed all through the Old Testament. I was thinking about it with one of the songs. Some of the words prompted me to think in, in the prophets. God says, okay, Israel, you're a tent. Let's make the tent bigger. Put the tent stakes out further. Let's add to this tent because I'm going to bring the Gentiles in. And that's what Simeon is referring to here, that he's going to do this. And then Simeon, in verse 34, he turns to Mary, and he talks to her directly and says, This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. When you read the Bible, one of the things you see is that God's ways seem backwards from ours. And he's not the one who's wrong. They got it backwards. When Jesus come, he did not focus on building a large following. Now, he did at times have large crowds follow him, but he wasn't trying to make them bigger and bigger and bigger. No, Jesus was actually polarizing. He was divisive, often. In the New Testament, when you look at how people respond, there are some that respond to Jesus with love because they see his acceptance of them and his forgiveness. But there are many that you see respond with hate, hatred, and some with confusion. I just don't know what to do with you. But here's, here's why this matters. A person's attitude towards Jesus and God's rescue through Jesus is directly, directly related to your eternal destiny. You see, if you embrace Jesus as the only way for your selfishness and sinful rebellion against God to be forgiven, if you look to Jesus as the only way to change your heart, then you'll spend eternity in heaven with Jesus, enjoying him perfectly. And that means that your life on earth as a Christian is preparation for heaven. But if you reject Jesus as the only way for you to be spiritually rescued, then you'll spend eternity separated from God and being punished by God. Then Simeon says, not only... <laughs> Is he appointed for the fall, fall and rising of many, but he's a sign that is opposed. And you see this. Plenty of people in Jesus' day, including many of the religious leaders, oppose Jesus. Plenty of people today oppose Jesus, some by ignoring him, just pretending he doesn't exist, some by adopting other religions. But plenty of people oppose Jesus today. And then Simeon says this, and we look at it and we can see the connection looking from this side of history through Jesus' life to this point 
when Simeon says to Mary, a sword will pierce through your own soul. Because the gospel story, in all four of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, spend the majority of their time, the largest part of their time, talking about Jesus last week and his death. And they show us that Mary watched her son Jesus die on a cross as he died for her sin and mine and yours. So we're celebrating, preparing for, and then this week we'll celebrate Christmas. And Jesus is God's gift to us. I'm going to close with a thought from a devotional by Paul Miller that I got this last week where he talks about what he calls the narrowing of love. How you and I choose to limit ourselves as we love others and how God and Jesus did this as well. If you put up the slide, you can see it's kind of, it looks kind of like a bumpy, lumpy J, but it's a very recognizable J. And normally when you draw a J, you start at the top and you go down and finish with the tail. Well, with the J curve, you start at the tail and you go down and then you go up a lot. Think about what we know of Jesus. In Jesus, God became man at that first Christmas. We're also told that when Jesus came to earth, he left all the splendor of heaven. So now we're starting at the tail and we're going down. He's narrowed. He has put things aside to come because he's chosen to love us. And then, then Jesus chose to suffer and to die in our place. So now we're at the bottom of the J. But then on the third day, Jesus rose again and you start up. And you notice you go up a whole lot higher than you went down in the, in the J curve. Well, in the spirit of Christmas, you and I have the opportunity every day to voluntarily choose to limit ourselves as we choose to love others. When we say yes to a person or yes to do something, we're saying no to other things. We have the opportunity to voluntarily limit ourselves. We have the opportunity to follow the path of the J-curve, to follow Jesus, because this is what Jesus did. He limited himself. He suffered. He died. He rose again. And we get to follow this pattern again and again. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for telling us what you were doing then and what you're doing today. We thank you for giving us your word. We thank you that we can celebrate Christmas and your great gift to us. Lord, sometimes the fact that we kind of get bored with Christmas tells us how much we need Christmas, need your rescue. So Lord, help us as we go through this week, as we celebrate Christmas Eve, as we celebrate Christmas Day, as we give gifts and enjoy family and all the things that we do, help us to see that you've given us the greatest gift ever, the one that goes for eternity. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond with a